Let's get started. Father, thank you for being able to come together. Thank you for being able to sit with your word. Thank you for a great time of worship, Lord, where uh, these songs could just express sort of the prayer of our hearts. And Lord, to be able to do that around a group of other people whose hearts are crying out the same thing as our hearts are crying out. Lord, it's uh, in many ways, it's sort of this touch of heaven, just a, a sense of what it's going to be like. And so, Lord, you've, you've blessed us already this morning. And, Lord, now we're looking to hear from you in your word uh, to grow. Lord, we know that you reveal yourself even as you reveal your will, and we pray once more you would do that. Lord, we pray uh, that the cares of this world, the distractions, those things that choke out, the good work you're trying to do, Lord, all of those things. Lord, for just a little bit, we put them aside that we might hear from you. Lord, we want to be obedient to the things that we uh, considered this morning. And so, Lord, uh, as you challenge us, which you always do, Lord, we pray for the courage to walk in that obedience. And Father, for those that aren't yet followers of Christ, might they see Jesus this morning. And Father, we, uh, you've told us to come and to pray prayers according to your will and that you hear them. And so Lord, we believe these prayers are according to your will. We pray that you would hear them, you'd move, you act, again, for your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in 1 Timothy. Would you please uh, begin the process of finding it? Uh, if you haven't been with us for any of our studies in 1 Timothy, you haven't missed uh, too many uh, studies. We're only at the 12th verse, um, so you missed the first 11. Now, that was three studies, uh, so you can go back and you can listen to them. But just a quick recap of where we are, we have an, an older man in the faith, the Apostle Paul, writing to a younger man in the faith, both men in ministry. And he's writing, as you can guess, to a fellow by the name of Timothy. And Timothy is going to be placed in charge. In many ways, he's going to be Paul's representative. Paul can't stay there. Timothy's going to kind of hold his position in this town or this city that is called Ephesus, a large church in Ephesus, not just one building, but a lot of believers there in the city of Ephesus. It became a very influential uh, church because Ephesus itself was an influential community. And there in that community, in that church, there were some of the leaders of that church that swerved. You can see that in verse 6 of chapter 1, that certain persons, by swerving from these, the teachings of Paul, have wandered away into vain discussion. We see that they desired to be something. It was their chief goal, that people would know my name, and I would stand out, and I would have an insight that nobody else had had. And in desiring to be these teachers of the law, they swerved. And again, remember, that's a word which means to leave the, the beaten path, to go off onto a new path that leads to nowhere. And that's what some of these folks had done. And it was our friend Timothy's job to put things in order and then to remain there in Ephesus and maintain that order. If you look at verse 10, you see there that Paul said that the teaching that these individuals had gotten into was contrary to to sound doctrine. That word sound, again, meaning healthy. It was contrary to sound and healthy doctrine. The, the sound and healthy doctrine that had been entrusted to Paul 
And then Paul entrusted it to those elders, and Paul entrusted it to, the, to Timothy and to Titus and to, other, and to others. There were some people in that community that had wandered away from that. And the Apostle Paul took his, uh, his ministry very, very seriously. This wasn't something he just sort of went about and hopefully, you know, I'll get it right here and there. He took it very, very seriously. He saw it as something that was entrusted to him. And he expected that the elders there in Ephesus, that Timothy, that you and I, that every one of us would take it seriously as well. He saw both his ministry that he was serving in and the message that he had as something that God entrusted him with. Paul wasn't the owner of these things. It wasn't his ministry. It wasn't his message. It was God's ministry. And it was God's message. And he was entrusted with it. He calls himself in another place a steward or, in our language, a manager. The manager doesn't own the business. The manager can't make all the decisions. He can make some of them. She can make some of them. But ultimately, it goes back to the owner. What would you have me to do? I was thinking of doing this. Does that sound good to you? He, Paul saw himself as a steward, one who was entrusted with a responsibility by another. And it was his to faithfully execute the will of the one that had entrusted it to him. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required, or most importantly, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. He says we're stewards of the mystery of God. And what's the most important character trait or quality of a steward is that they be faithful. And sadly, some of the elders there in that city, they had forgotten that. They had drifted from that. They had swerved away from that. And again, as I said, it would be Timothy's job to restore order and then to maintain that order. Now, as we move on here, or, or prepare to move on, one of the things that strikes me, which I didn't mention last week, is found in verse 11. It says uh, there, in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been trusted. Now, what strikes me about that is not only that Paul says that he was entrusted with it, but how he says it, especially as it's written in the original language. So speaking again, he's talking here about this glorious gospel of the blessed God, he says, with which I have been entrusted. In the original language, it, it speaks more like this, at, uh, with which I, even I, have been entrusted with this glorious gospel. And the reason that strikes me is because here is Paul 30 years after he had come to the faith, and here is Paul some 20 to 25 years after he began uh, in sort of this leadership ministry role, and after all of this time, he was still blown away that God would have called someone like him, I, even I, he says. It still blew his mind. Now, if you don't know much about the Apostle Paul, Maybe you're thinking, well, I know a little bit about him. Didn't he write like half the New Testament? And wasn't he an apostle? And didn't he go to all these places and do all these things? You know, so I get why God would pick him. But again, if you don't know much about the apostle Paul, that statement, you might say, I, even I, well, that doesn't, that's not that big a deal. Of course, God would choose someone like you. You're so smart. You were so brilliant. You are articulate. You were well-trained in so many languages Paul, you were so courageous. Of course God would pick someone like you. 
The reality is, Paul was a little more familiar with himself than many of us might be with the Apostle Paul. The reality is, Paul was very familiar with the place from which he had come. That place, uh, after having just brought up the glorious gospel, remember, uh, from last week? Paul, that glorious gospel means a lot to the Apostle Paul. And so this is what he goes on to say. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly, this is Paul's story, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to give you the punchline of our message today, right here at the beginning. If you take anything away from today's message, this is what I hope it is. It's that God has the power to transform lives. And one of the great examples of that in all of history is the Apostle Paul. And so Paul, in writing to Timothy here, he begins to recollect his personal story of coming to the faith. He began to tell what we commonly refer to as his testimony. He begins here to tell his testimony to young Timothy, which I suspect Timothy was familiar with. Like, yeah, I know this, Paul. I don't need to know, hear this all again. Of course I've heard this story before. But Paul never tired of telling his story the details of which are conveyed in no less than seven places in the New Testament. Acts chapter 9, that's when his story actually began. Acts 22, Acts 26, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 3, and then here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In all of those places, Paul tells an aspect of his story, how God entered into his life and forever changed him. Now think about that. We don't have every story of every person uh, in the first century church. And yet, he, so with the limited material that we do have in our New Testaments, in seven different places, the Apostle Paul thinks his story is important enough to convey the facts of that story, that testimony. Again, Paul never tired of telling his story. He never lost the wonder that God could and that God did redeem someone like him, someone with a past like the one that he had. And in fact, as we see, Paul viewed himself as the supreme example of God's saving grace. That is, the one that needed more grace than anyone else in order to be saved. Paul saw himself as that person. He never tired of telling his story. There is great power in our Christian testimony. Now, of course, not all of us are going to go on to become apostles and prophets and preachers and things like that. We are all called, however, to be prepared to tell our story to other people. 
of the remarkable work that God has done and the remarkable work that God is doing in our lives. The Apostle Peter, remember him? He had a story to tell, didn't he, of the way in which God changed him? The Apostle Peter, he told us this. He says, have no fear of them. Sounds like underdog. Remember underdog? He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, and to do it, he says, with gentleness and respect. And so you and I, as we communicate with people and we talk with people and we answer their questions that they may raise with us, we may not know the answer to every question that may be addressed toward us, but we do know the details of our own personal story. I would imagine you do, don't you? We can tell others, look, this is who I once was. This is the type of person I was, the things I got involved in, the way I thought about things. This is who I was. We can tell people, this is what God did in my life. This is how he came into my life. I didn't always think this way. I didn't always act this way. I didn't always believe these things. But here is how God intervened and got it into my life. And then finally, this is what I'm becoming. You should be an expert on those things because it's your life. And we could all answer those questions and tell that story. I'm reminded of the man in John chapter 9, the man that was born blind. Uh, maybe you remember the story. This is John 9, almost the entirety of the chapter. And here you have this fellow. He was born blind, and you know, he was just kind of going about his life. And people began to you know, look at this guy and see, Jesus, see that guy over there? And they began to have theological debates about this man. They began to ask this question, who sinned, his parents or him, that he would be born blind? And Jesus wasn't interested in a theological debate about this guy. Jesus cared about this guy. And Jesus wanted to minister to this guy. And so he, this conversation goes on. They go back and forth here a little bit here. But here Jesus sees a man that was hurting and that needed to be healed. And so Jesus, rather than getting into this big debate, he declares instead, well, this is what you have in front of you here, this fellow that's blind, this is to display the works of God in this man's life. And then Jesus would go on and give this man the ability to see for the first time in his life. If you remember the story, he makes a mud, it's kind of weird, he comes up to this, he spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, he tells the guy, now go wash, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the guy goes away, dirt all over his face, probably still, certainly still not able to see. But then he gets there and he washes, and he is able to see. And in that John 9 passage, he comes back to kind of where he had been before, this time able to see. Now part of the reason why I'm telling you the story in the context of what we're looking at here is because this man's life was forever different. He was radically transformed by Jesus. Jesus touched his life, and he was never the same again. Now, in the story, following that initial transforming work, we're told that people began to look at this guy. Isn't that the guy that was blind? Obviously not. He's not blind now. You know, no, 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 I think that's him. Look, it can't be him. That man can see. And so people saw that this fellow was different, and they began to talk about it, wonder about it, ask about it. And this man interjects here. I'll read it. It's John 9. It says, Now the neighbor and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some says it is him. Others says, No, it looks like him. 
It looks like the blind guy, but it's not a blind guy, so it can't be the blind guy. Because in their mind, you are what you are, and you can never, forever, you can never change. In their mind, you are what you are, and you will always be that person. Notice that the guy keeps insisting, I'm the man. Hey, yes, I'm the man. They're talking about him, and he's like, ask me. I'm the man. I'm that guy. I imagine they pushed back. It doesn't say this, but I imagine, no, you can't be the guy. We're looking for a blind guy. No, I'm the guy. Finally, after some back and forth, they say to him, well, then how were your eyes opened? Read the story. It's such a cool story, particularly when you think about it from the place of salvation. There's a man's physical blindness, but you think about spiritual blindness and how people can come to see. And so they go back and forth, and how can you be the guy, and you didn't see, but now you do see. How can that be? And he says, look, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. He says, this is what I do know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that sweet? That's our Christian testimony. Well, what about the pygmies in Africa? I don't know. I don't know about the pygmies. I don't know the answer to all the questions that you may have. One thing I know is this. I was blind, and now I see. I didn't give a care. I didn't think about God at all. And now he's the affection of my heart. I was changed. That's what I know. That's what's made me different. What the man did was simply told his story of how Jesus changed him. And that's what Paul does here in 1 Timothy. And like I said, he did it in six other places as well. He recounts his story of who he was, what God did, and who he has become. And this time, the the purpose of him telling the story, it's prompted, if you remember from last week, because he was addressing those that were using the law for sanctification. Remember? Yes, you got to be a follower of Jesus, but you got to keep all these things in order to maintain that right relationship with God. And so Paul was saying, no, they want to teach the law, but they don't even understand the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to create a righteousness in and of ourselves. The purpose of the law is to realize we can't do it and to cry out to God in desperation. And so then Paul will tell his story. I'm a guy that cried out to God in desperation. I'm a guy that thought I had it all figured out and only at the end came to realize, oh my gosh, look how far from God I actually am. And then he cried out to God, Lord, who are you, he says. I'm Jesus, whom you've been persecuting, Acts chapter 9 tells us. And so Paul here, he points them to the truth of the gospel of grace, not the gospel of the law. He says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he's judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now there's three things in this verse that stand out to me. The first is the gratitude of the Apostle Paul. He begins the statement by saying, I thank him. Now think about the Apostle Paul. We studied Acts uh, together, so most of us were here for that. And you remember, you know, the whole second half of the book of Acts is pretty much his journeys. And he served the Lord. He's gone all over the world in ministry for God. You know, you think about the Apostle Paul. What was Paul's hometown as an adult? And, you know, you, you rack your brain. You can't come up with one. Because he would stay here for a couple of years and over here for six months and over here for a year and a half. And he was just constantly moving. He really didn't even have a home that he could call his home. Because he's always on the road or always on the sea 
preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was imprisoned on multiple occasions for long periods of time because of the ministry that he was doing. On more than one occasion, he was beaten because of the ministry that he undertook. In one case, he was stoned and left for dead and probably actually did die. And God raised him back to life again because of this ministry. We read in our Bibles that he was shipwrecked and that he was at, at one point left adrift for multiple days and nights at sea because of the ministry. And yet notice here, Paul says, I thank God for the ministry that he has called me to. You know, with all that he had been through, you might expect a lesser man to say, it sure would be nice to get a thanks every now and again. And yet here's Paul saying, I thank God that he's given me the opportunity to do these things. Instead of looking for gratitude uh, expressed toward him, he instead expresses gratitude toward Jesus for the privilege that he's been given to serve. In fact, and this sounds a bit like Yoda. Remember Yoda from Star Wars? Uh, not the other one, this one. Uh, anyway, forget it. Are there, how many Yodas are there? Do you really need to clarify the one from Star Wars? But you remember Yoda. Here's how it's worded here. When Paul says, I thank him, it's worded this way. Gratitude I am having. That's gratitude I am having. You know, like Yoda <laughs> that he is having here. So that stands out to me. Because again, 30 years after the fact, he is still presently thankful for the opportunity to do what he has been doing, even though it brought all these things uh, into his life. He says, gratitude I am having for the strength that he has given me, for the service that he has appointed me. He was still thankful, first to be in relationship with God, and then second for the privilege of serving God. That's the first thing I notice in that verse 12. The second thing that I take note of is where he speaks of the strength that Christ Jesus has given him. Some of your versions might word it a little differently uh, by saying that he has enabled me. Don't miss that important fact. God not only entrusted the ministry, a ministry, into Paul's care, but notice he also gave him the strength to fulfill that ministry. So God gave him a ministry, but then also gave him the strength to fulfill that ministry. That's very important, and especially from the perspective of Timothy. Timothy, you're a young guy. I want to put you in charge of perhaps the most important church in the first century, and I want you to stand up to a lot of those older guys that have been in the faith a lot longer than you, and I want you to put them in line, keep, maintain that order, put it in order, and maintain that order. Me? I can't do this, is perhaps what Timothy was thinking. Another place, Paul would say to Timothy, don't let them look down upon you because you're young. You're standing not on who you are and what, you know, your strength and all this stuff. You're standing on the word. So don't let them look down upon you. Do what you've been called to do, Timothy, here. And so for Timothy then to be reminded that God appoints us to service, but then he also strengthens us or enables us for that service, that's extremely significant and important. There's an expression, you maybe heard it. It says, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped, he equips the call. And so if you find yourself in the midst of a calling, that God has raised up an opportunity for you to minister in some way, whether it's an official thing, like something like what I'm doing right now, or you became that person at work, 
And people come to you with your questions, and oh my gosh, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the call. This idea here of being strengthened, it carries with it the idea of being made equal to the task. You can do this. I've told the story when I was in high school, uh, when I was transitioning from the junior varsity soccer team to the varsity soccer team, I felt a little bit like, I can't do this. These people are so good, and I'm just some kid, or whatever. And a coach pulled me aside and essentially said, look, you belong here. You can do this. And that little phrase, those couple little words that he said to me were enough for me to recognize I belong on this field and I can do what I need to do. You have been made equal to the task. Notice this, it is God who enables a person. And, every, and any and every person, you, me, Paul, Timothy, any and every person, it is God who enables a person to be equal to the task for which he has called us. And so as a follower of Christ, some examples, perhaps, parenting a difficult child. How many times have you thought, I can't do this? God equips the called. Withstanding temptation. You want to walk with the Lord, you want to honor the Lord, and the temptation is strong, and you feel like, I, just, I have to give in. Withstanding a temptation. He strengthens us for the task. Courageously standing for truth, which we need to do more and more, don't we? And courageously taking that stand and not keeping your mouth shut because God is impressing upon you, you need to speak truth. And it may not win that person, but those seven other people listening, it'll influence them. I want you to take that stand. You know, I can't. Yes, you can, because he strengthens us for the task. Loving the one we perceive to be unlovable. I am just done with this person. He can equip you. He can strengthen you. Paul didn't deal with the shipwreck and the imprisonment and the, be and the beatings that he went through or the overall difficulty of his life in his own strength. It was the grace of God and the strength of God that enabled Paul to do that which God was calling him to do. And Paul's no different from you and I. God will strengthen you and he will enable you by his grace and through his mercy to do that which he has called us to do and called you to do. Here's some verses that come to mind. 1 Corinthians 15. It says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Philippians 4, he says this. Now, the context of that passage, he's referencing all the difficulties that he had been going through. And he says, I've learned this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul said, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The word of God is clear. God will strengthen you and enable you for the task that he has called you to. Yours is depend on, to depend on him. So he says, I thank him who has given me strength. And then he adds... Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to service. God, in Paul, saw one that he could trust with the task that he placed in his hands. And again, I go back to something I said, I think, in our first study of this book. We can't always control how smart we are or how skilled we are, but we can always control whether or not we are faithful and dependable and reliable. 
And again, I'll quote Paul. He said, moreover, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. And so perhaps you feel you don't measure up to the task. I'm not smart enough to do this. I'm not a good enough speaker to do this. I'm not quick enough on my feet to, to do this. Can you be faithful? Can you go there? Can you open your mouth when God tells you to open your mouth? Close your mouth when God tells you to close your mouth? Extend your hand when God tells you to extend your hand and pull it back when he tells you to pull it back. Can you listen to him and obey? That's what he calls us to. He says, appointing me to his service. Remember earlier he said, I, even I. Here it's as if he says, me, even me. Appointing me, even me, to his service. And then he jumps into his personal testimony. And again, some there in Ephesus had been presenting a false gospel. And so Paul presents the true gospel. And he uses himself as exhibit A of that true gospel. He says in verse 13, again in the context, he appointed me to service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, what you see here is Paul is kind of, you know, I was this bad. I was this bad. No, I was this bad. It's this ascending order of depravity. He begins by saying, I was a blasphemer. Now, that, that's in regards to the words that he spoke, the things that he said, certainly denying that Jesus was God in the flesh, but also a blasphemer against the followers of God. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. He then adds to that, not only that, but I was a persecutor. And that describes the suffering that he inflicted upon others because they were followers of Christ. You can read the book of Acts, Acts 9-ish, 8 and 9 or so, as people are running for their lives and hiding from this madman that was coming uh, out to get them. And then from that he adds, and I was an insolent opponent. And that speaks of the cruel abuse that he inflicted on others. So he calls the suffering on others, and then it just entered into the realm of cruelty, the types of things that he would do to people, physically and emotionally and the like. Look, if you're not aware, you should know that the Apostle Paul was not always the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not always a follower of Christ that went everywhere seeking to uh, introduce people into a relationship with Christ. In actuality, there was a period in this man's life when he devoted himself to destroy the Christian faith. There was a point in this man's life where he physically forced people to renounce their faith. And he says later with regret, and some people did. They renounced Jesus because of me and what I forced them to do. In some cases, Paul even authorized, he was the one that gave the authority to others to put people to death because they were followers of Jesus Christ. Paul's goal was nothing short than the extermination of the Christian faith. Here's how he described it in two places in the book of Acts. Acts 22, he says, I persecuted this way. That's referring to the Christian faith. The context will tell you that. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the, the council of elders, they can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed all the way to Damascus, 130 miles away. This guy was serious about this, to take those also who were there and bring them in chains down to Jerusalem to be punished. In Acts 26, 
He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's who we're talking about here, the Apostle Paul. Wasn't always the Apostle Paul. Now, you would think that all God has for a person like that would be lightning bolts from heaven. And I imagine there were some prayers prayed. God, you got to take this guy out. God, this guy is so evil. This guy is so wicked. Very few were probably praying, Lord, save him. What a testimony he would be. You remember when he did get saved, people were like, oh, I don't know. You know, I, I bet it's a, like, it's a, a scheme. He's trying to like sneak in here, find out who all the Christians are, and then he's going to kill us all while we have our eyes closed and heads bowed. This guy's crazy. What do you think about that? Nobody commented on it. You're all just like, okay. You know what I mean? Maybe it's my imagination. I watch a lot of TV. And yet, rather than lightning bolts coming from heaven, notice it says, Paul says, though formerly I was these things. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. Formerly I was a persecutor. Formerly I was an insolent opponent, but I have received mercy. Something I love about this testimony here is Paul's past did not disqualify him from present ministry. His past did not disqualify him from present ministry. The mercy and the grace of God were enough in Paul's life to cover his past and to enable him for his present. And I hope everyone here this morning is encouraged by the wonderful reality that even as a child of God, we never need feel that our past disqualifies us from being used by God in the present. Again, Paul here, he says, though I was formerly these things, he says, I received mercy. Paul, for the entirety of his Christian walk, uh, was absolutely convinced that while he was completely undeserving of the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God, that's exactly what he received from God. And there was a, Paul, a time in Paul's life when he was absolutely convinced that what he was doing was right before God. But in reality, as he goes on to say in verse 13, I did those, when I did those things, I acted in ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was doing what God would have me to do, but I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, very important, that doesn't excuse his behavior. Had Paul not become a Christian, he would have been held accountable for that behavior. But it does explain his behavior, that he would travel all over because he thought he was serving God. He thought that this was a religion that were leading people astray, and somebody had to put a stop to this religion. He sincerely did those things. People will often speak about what really matters with God is sincerity. They'll say things to the effect of, look, what we believe isn't really as important as the sincerity, sincerity in which we hold what we believe. The Bible doesn't know anything about that sort of thinking. 
Now, look, sincerity is good. It's certainly better to be sincere about something than to be insincere and faking it. So sincerity is good. But a person can be sincere and still be in the wrong. And so Paul sincerely believed that what he was doing was right by God and, and acting in the way that he did and the horrible things that he did. But in reality, what he was doing, he was acting in ignorance. He was not willfully disobedient to God. And because he hadn't been willfully disobedient to God, God could still work in his heart. His heart hadn't hardened over. And God could still work there and extend to him his mercy. And by mercy, again, we're talking about not giving him what he deserved. What he deserved, my goodness, lightning bolts from heaven. And not only that, not only did God give him mercy, and he's so kind not to give Paul what he deserved, but he also gave him grace, which is what he does not deserve. And he says that in verse 14. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Notice that. He speaks of God's grace overflowing in his life. It's a word which was used to describe a creek of sorts that would rise and overflow its banks. And so the pit, the low point of that creek, that's where Paul was in his sin. But God's grace overflowed. It was more than enough. It was everything he needed. In Romans chapter 5, he refers to it there. He says, and grace abounded all the more. What a wonderful thought and idea, how grace abounded all the more. He says, the law came in to uh, increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And Paul then is moved to praise. Look at verse 15. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I like the way that King James and New King James says uh, that I am the chief of sinners or something to that effect. And again, remember the context of, you know, where are we? Why, do, why is Paul talking about this? Because there were those preaching that people could be good enough to earn God's favor and that they needed to. And Paul instead says, no, this saying is trust, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. A relationship with God through Jesus has to begin at that starting point. A relationship with God through Jesus must begin at the place where we acknowledge our sin, where we acknowledge our missing the mark of God's holy perfection. And since Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that's the first necessary qualification for being a child of God that you are a sinner. As Jesus quoted, this is Mark chapter 2, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Even so, we know those who are righteous, or more properly self-righteous, those that are righteous have no need of a savior. Surprisingly to many, sinners are not disqualified from coming to God through Jesus Christ. In reality, that's the only way you can come to God through Jesus Christ, is by being a sinner. And that's the message that separates the Christian faith from all other false teachings. False religions tell man that there's something he can do or something he can be in order to win the favor of God. But the gospel tells man that he or she is a sinner, that he or she is lost, that he or she cannot save themselves. And that the only way they can get to heaven is through the work 
of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not those living under the illusion of their own righteousness, as those elders in Ephesus were teaching. Jesus didn't come into the world to save good people. Romans chapter 3 tells us there are none that are good. As we read in Matthew chapter 9, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. You remember when Joseph was told by the angel that Mary, his espoused wife, that she was with child. Well, that angel would go on to say, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus or Yeshua, it means God of salvation, the Lord of salvation. So you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he declared that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. All the way through, Jesus' ministry was clear. He came to save the lost. Sinners, that's humanity's greatest need, a Savior that will save us from our sin. And though a relationship with God through Jesus, no doubt, It's going to impact the way you parent, and it's going to impact the way you control your finances, and it's going to impact your overall mental health, and it probably is going to impact even your physical health. All of those things, if you will, are side benefits of a relationship with God, but our primary need is not parenting help, and our primary need is not physical and mental health, and our primary need is not these other things, which many times become what we preach. Our primary need is a Savior to save us from our sin. More than anything else, that's what we needed. And so, look at verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then Paul adds, of whom... I am the foremost. He ends that uh, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance statement. He says, of whom I am the foremost. Now notice he doesn't say, of whom I was the foremost. You know, you can read that quickly and think, yeah, my goodness, you, you chased people down, you killed some people, you threw them in jail, you made them blaspheme. You really were a bad guy. Paul is saying, I really am a bad guy. What are you talking about, Paul? You're the apostle Paul. Anyone's got it all together, you got it all together. You've been teaching us how to get it together. And yet, what we see about the Apostle Paul is the closer he grew to God, the more sinful he recognized he was. Now, from the outside, every one of us looking at him, we're like, what are you talking about, sinful? I've never seen you say a bad word. I've never seen you mistreat people. I've never seen you do this or that. Like, no, you don't understand in here. The closer I get to God, Paul says, the more it is revealed to me just how far from God I actually am. That's why he says there that I am the foremost. It's been said the godliest saints are often the most conscious of their own sinfulness. It's also been said we sin less, but we repent more. And again, it's as we draw nearer to God that more and more we realize just how far short of his holiness we come. And so when people say to me, man, by now I feel like I shouldn't be having these thoughts or I feel like I shouldn't be responding in this way, that's encouraging to me to hear that. Because that tells me that's a person drawing closer to God and he's revealing even more things to that person about where they are in their walk with God. Paul's faith and walk, it didn't cause him to boast in his self-righteousness. Notice that. 
That's what these elders were doing. Follow these rules, and then you can be in charge like us and a teacher of the law, and you can be sanctified like us. Paul's righteousness didn't cause him to boast. The closer he got to God, it, the more he realized God's mercy and grace, how dependent on those he was. He was ever cognizant of God's mercy in his life. He says, for this reason, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul knew. That's me. I'm a candidate for that, and so are you and I. He goes on in verse 16, he says, But I received mercy. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's the second time in like three verses he says, But I received mercy. This time he tells us the reason he did is so that he could be an example to others. Not an example of how to live your life, but an example of what God can do, he says. An example of God's perfect patience to everyone else who would believe. His point, if God could save me, Paul, if God could save me and then subsequently use me in his service, well, then he can do that in any else's life as well. That's the Apostle Paul's point there. Now maybe you hear that and you say, well you don't understand, I used to lie and cheat and take advantage of people. Somebody would say, oh that's nothing, let me tell you about the Apostle Paul and what he used to do. You say, but, yeah, but I was involved in you know, horrible, horrible things, sexual sin, violent type stuff, I, I was just a bad person. And Paul would say, let me tell you my story. And after hearing it, you'd be like, oh, here's something. Jesus can forgive every single one of us. He can cleanse every single one of us. And he can use, I love this, every single one of us for his glory. How good is that? Isn't that great? Where's Sue, Sue Ruckman? How great is that? Wherever she may be. Paul's point again, is that if the Lord was patient with the worst of sinners, then no one is beyond the reach of his grace. God's grace can reach anyone. And he was absolutely convinced of that truth. And I hope every one of us here is absolutely convinced of that truth. Well, with that, Paul then says, man, God's good. And here's how he words it. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Would you agree? Let's pray. Father, we delight in that wonderful truth. And Lord, we know the experience. I imagine every one of us here that's a follower of Christ, we know the experience of coming into your presence. Maybe we're singing a worship song, we're reading a passage of scripture, we're, we're in a time of prayer, we're going about our day and we're communing with you and we come into your presence in a special way and there's this realization of, I don't belong here because your holiness has sort of enveloped that space. And yet we are reminded this morning that if anyone is in Christ, that he is a new creation, that the old has passed away, that all things have become new. We are reminded that the task that you place before us, though it is far greater than our own abilities,
And what right do we have to even say anything to anyone considering who we were? We're reminded that your mercy cleanses us, your grace empowers us for the task that is before us. And so, Lord, I pray today we would leave here kind of fired up and inspired to serve you. God, work through me. May that be the prayer of each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.